We often, <coughs> we often think of meditation as being the heart of the path of awakening. And in many ways it is. The cultivation of mindfulness, of concentration, is what makes possible the wisdom that liberates our minds. But as we're about to leave the retreat and re-engage with our lives in the world, it's important to remember that the Buddha's teachings, the teachings of liberation, are much more inclusive of all of life's activities than simply the special circumstances of an intensive retreat. And we see this with unmistakable clarity when we examine each of the steps of the Noble Eightfold Path. Now, having established ourselves to some degree in right understanding, and having cultivated the discernment and the practice of right thought, thoughts of renunciation, of loving-kindness, of compassion, the Buddha then lays out how these are applied in the world, how they're applied in our lives, in our speech, in our actions, in our livelihood. As we reflect on our own commitment to liberation, to freedom, we might notice a tendency to make these aspects, the life in the world aspects of the path, somewhat of a lesser endeavor you know, not quite being as important as our intensive meditation practice on our spiritual journey. But if we hold it in this way, we really are fragmenting our lives, and we're weakening essential elements of the path. <clears throat> in many discourses, the Buddha spoke of ten unwholesome actions to avoid, and seven of the ten are purified by the three steps of the Eightfold Path that have to do with living in the world. So this is not some secondary endeavor. It's central in terms of our path of liberation. <clears throat> wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. Each of them requires a very attentive mindfulness and discerning wisdom, perhaps even more so than on retreat, given the busyness and distractedness of our lives. So Bhikkhu Bodhi, who most of you may know, is an American who's been a monk for a long time, lived for in Sri Lanka for a long time, and is this outstanding translator of the ancient Pali texts <clears throat> he has wonderful translations of the Buddha's discourses and an encyclopedic knowledge of the teachings. So this is what he says about these three life-in-the-world steps, right speech, action, and livelihood. He said, though the principles laid down in this section restrain immoral actions and promote good conduct, 
Their ultimate purpose is not so much ethical as spiritual. They are not prescribed merely as guides to action, but primarily as aids to mental purification. As a necessary measure for human well-being, ethics has its own justification in the Buddhist teachings, and its importance cannot be underrated. But in the special context of the Noble Eightfold Path, ethical principles are subordinate to the path's governing goal, which is final deliverance from suffering. I don't know if you can hear the import of that, that these steps on the path are ethical guidelines, but they're more than that. They're actually essential steps if we want to free ourselves. So the first of this triad of path factors is right speech. And this is the one I'd like to speak about tonight. As we all know, speech is an immensely powerful force in our lives. Why? Because we speak a lot. (laughs) And we know from the frequency of how much we talk It conditions our relationships, it conditions our minds and hearts, and also conditions karmic consequences in the future. Our words have power, not only in the present moment, they're seeds of karmic results. The most basic aspect of right speech is truthfulness. Not saying that which is untrue. Now, although this may seem so obvious and so straightforward, it may not be as easy to practice as we assume. There are many kinds of false speech. It might be slight exaggerations or just humorous untruths. It might be falsehoods that we say motivated by a self-protection, impulse to self-protection, or protection of others. Or sometimes, hopefully infrequently, there are deliberate lies with the intent to cause divisiveness and harm. It was interesting to me in last year's presidential election, you know, the candidates Each of them were making all kinds of claims and assertions. And one of the news programs, I don't remember which one, had a a segment which they called Fact Check. (laughs) And they just ran down the list of what each of the candidates said that day. True, true, lie, lie. (laughs) And it was really interesting, you know, to see for a variety of reasons and with a variety of justifications, honorable people saying that which was untrue. In any situation where we speak an untruth, what is the motivation? What motivates us to say something? Is it greed for something? 
Is it a desire for recognition or perhaps self-aggrandizement in some way? Is it because of a fear of rejection or maybe out of a feeling of jealousy? Telling untruths becomes very complicated. It complicates our lives enormously because we have to continue then telling other untruths to support the first. And then we need to remember them all. Mark Twain summed this up in his usual pithy way. He said, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a definite help in this aging process. We all know (coughs) that lying is a tremendously corrosive force, both in our relationships and in society, because it undermines our ability to trust. The great philosopher Nietzsche said, I'm not upset that you lied to me. I'm upset that from now on I can't believe you. And we probably have all had some experiences of that. The Buddha spoke of all this very bluntly. And I just want to read his words here. Thus one should never knowingly speak a lie, either for the sake of one's own advantage, or for the sake of another person's advantage, or for the sake of any advantage whatsoever. Pretty straightforward statement. And in the Bodhisattva's long journey to Buddhahood, you know, that Steve spoke about uh, the other night, even from the time he was confirmed, you know, as a Bodhisattva, that he would become a Buddha someday, over those many lifetimes, he committed many misdeeds, he broke many precepts. But it's said that in that long journey to Buddhahood, there is one precept he never broke. And that was the precept of speaking the truth. That in all that time, it's said he never spoke a lie. So central is truthfulness to this path of awakening. So it's helpful to reflect on this with regard to our own commitment to truthfulness in our lives. What's surprising is that what seems so simple can be surprisingly difficult. Sometimes lies just seem to tumble right out of our mouths. Some years ago, at the end of our annual three-month retreat at IMS, Now, we have a few days which we call integration days, where people are talking and meeting in groups and sort of reintegrating into a more normal life. And people would talk about, you know, their practice. And in one of the groups we had during that time, we were talking about speech. And one of the yogis made the comment that in speaking with other yogis, You know, and they'd be talking, oh, you know, what was your longest sit? What was your longest sit? 
that he always added 15 minutes. <laughs> now it's totally pointless, but it just seems to it just seems to tumble out. Another yogi story, which many of you have heard before, but it's so it's so uh, exemplary of this tendency. At, um, at IMS, we have these big walk-in uh, refrigerators and freezers off the kitchen. And one evening, a staff person went into the big walk-in refrigerator, and they saw a yogi in there <laughs> with his hand in the box of almonds. And the staff person was very nice and just said, oh, can I help you? <laughs> and the yogi said, I'm looking for the maintenance person. <laughs> it's just, it just comes out. There might, there might also be lies of omission. You know, when we are covering or withholding something, really of critical importance. And the poet Adrian Rich, she's, she's expressed this. She said, lying is done with words and also with silence. So that's another s more subtle aspect, perhaps. Or we might be living under the illusion that we would never lie in whatever form it might take. And therefore, if we're living under this illusion, it becomes harder to see or acknowledge when we actually do. And I had a very powerful and painful and ultimately freeing experience of this in my practice with Saida Upandita. It was the first course, first long retreat uh, he taught in this country. It was in 1984, three months, very intense. <coughs> sleeping just four hours a night, meeting with him six times a week, very strict, demanding reporting form. So it was a very high-pressured uh, retreat. And I was lost in some idea of where I thought my practice was at. And so I was presenting my experience in a certain light, you know, casting in a certain light, expressing it in a certain way. When I finished my report, Sayadaw looked, looked at me, and he said, that isn't true. <laughs> I was devastated. I mean, you can imagine the intensity of the situation, because I realized, I mean, his great skill is in tracking the practice so carefully, he can tell from day to day, almost from hour to hour, what would be happening. So I was kind of fudging a little bit, that isn't true. So I was totally devastated. It took me days to recover, <laughs> literally. You know, and I finally worked through all these feelings of shame and self-judgment, and I felt terrible. But I finally came to the place of recognizing, hmm, yes, my mind can do that too. And if you had asked me before that incident, would you ever you know, shade the truth, especially in a conversation with my teacher. I, oh, never, I'd never do that. 
So having it pointed out so clearly and unmistakably, after going through all those horrible feelings, it was really freeing to acknowledge the mind has this capacity also. The mind can do this. It then became much easier to see those impulses arise in the mind because I wasn't living in the delusion that I'd never do it. You know, so I could see those impulses. I held them more lightly. I could make wiser choices. All because I acknowledged to myself, yes, this is possible too. When we're willing to see ourselves really honestly, and sometimes it needs to be pointed out to us before we do see it, we're more able to make wiser choices in our lives because we're seeing clearly. Sometimes it takes enormous courage to speak only what is true. And there's a very inspiring example of this in a book called Life and Death in Shanghai. It came out some years ago. Uh, It's written by a Chinese woman named Yan Cheng. And she was a very upper-class Chinese woman married to a manager of, I think, Shell Petroleum in China. And then the Cultural Revolution happened. And the Red Guards came in and came into her apartment, destroyed these you know, ancient and priceless porcelain and jade uh, pottery and things. And then they charged her with espionage and imprisoned her. And it was all part of a big political uh, ploy to undermine one of the Chinese leaders that the Red Guards were out to get. She was in prison for years and tortured for years. And all she had to do to be released was to sign a confession about some uh, you know, espionage with this, with this political leader. And she refused to do it. She refused to sign to say that which was untrue. And they kept her in jail for years more, torturing her. And they said, and in the book, she, she is describing this whole situation. It was amazing. And they said, we will let you out if you sign this. She was so committed to the truth that she refused to do it. And fortunately, in the end, finally, after many years, uh, she was released and she actually moved to this country and lived in D.C. But it was such an inspiring example and what amazing courage it took to be in that situation totally committed to truthfulness. So it was tremendously inspiring to me. Truthfulness as the first aspect of wise speech has profound implications because our whole goal in practice is to see what is true. The word dharma, the term dharma, in one of its meanings, is the true nature of things. So when we're practicing the dharma, we're practicing what is true. Bhikkhu Bodhi expressed this again really well. He said, truthful speech 
establishes a correspondence between our inner being and the real nature of phenomena. Thus, much more than an ethical principle, devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than illusion. You know, it's, a, it's, it's really a powerful statement of what speaking the truth is about, taking our stand on reality rather than on illusion. The Buddha expressed the overriding importance of this in a conversation he had with his young son, Rahula, who at the time was a novice monk. And the Buddha pointed to a bowl with just a little bit of water at the bottom of it. And he said, he said to his son Rahula, so little is the spiritual achievement of one who is not afraid to tell a deliberate lie. Strong words. And then the Buddha turned the bowl over and the water ran out. And he said, do you see, Rahula, how this bowl has been turned upside down? In the same way, one who tells a deliberate lie turns his spiritual achievements upside down and becomes incapable of progress. Therefore, the Buddha concluded, one should never speak a deliberate lie, even in jest. So we need to recognize that this is a practice. You know, we may well not yet have perfected it. We're all on this path, and we're working with these aspirations, but it's important to understand what our aspirations actually are. It's helpful to sensitize ourselves even to small falsehoods. You know, and if we hold this aspiration, now even as we make mistakes and things tumble out and we fudge things now and again, but we practice, we really practice coming back to this. It's as if there's a little mindfulness bell that goes off every time we're about to say something that's not true. And it gives us the opportunity to realign ourselves right in that moment with right speech. So that's the first aspect of wise speech. The second is refraining from slandering, gossip, and backbiting, the words that cause disharmony and loss of friends. Again, this is from the Buddha's words. What one has heard here is not repeated there, so as to cause dissension there. What one has heard there is not repeated here, so as not to cause dissension here. One unites those who are divided and encourages those who are united. One delights and rejoices in concord, and it is concord that one spreads by one's words. So a question for us to consider, given the strong and worldwide tendency to gossip, is what is the enjoyment of it? It's a very strong tendency. So what do we get out of it? What is the enjoyment? When we're gossiping about others, does it reaffirm some sense of self? Is there some ego gratification in it? 
I had one story with somewhat happy ending. Years ago, there was a writer who was doing a book about the spiritual scene in America, <coughs> and he was going around interviewing different teachers. This was maybe 20 years ago or so. And he came to me, he came to my home, and we sat down. He's a very skillful interviewer. And he was just asking me you know, about my understanding of the growth of the Dharma and the spiritual, um, different spiritual scenes. Then he started asking me my opinion about different teachers. And almost everything in me wanted to give voice (laughs) to my many opinions (laughs) about the different teachers. Nobody here. (laughs) However, due to some blessing, a moment of mindfulness arose, and I saw this impulse, you know, just to put in my two cents about everyone, and I refrained from doing so. And the interview went on, and then the book came out, and I saw that everything that I had said in the interview was in the book. And I thought, what would it have been like if I had just given voice to all that, and then there it was and is out in print, lots of people reading it, I would have felt terrible. The power of mindfulness, you know, to help us restrain from unwise speech saves us so much suffering, is so conducive to peace, to harmony. I first became interested in Buddhism. My first introduction was when I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. This goes back, it was in 1965. I was teaching English uh, and just beginning to go to some of the monasteries and talk with the monks and doing some reading. Very interested in the precepts, you know, in this aspect of right speech. So in the enthusiasm, my youthful enthusiasm of exploring this, I made an experiment. And for about a three-month period, I decided not to speak about any third person. I wasn't going to speak to someone about someone else. It was amazing. Ninety percent of my speech was eliminated. (laughs) It was amazing. I had no idea that so much of my speech was about other people, even not necessarily malicious, you know, but just speaking about others. But even if we loosen that parameter a little bit, we can still take a lot of care, and we should take a lot of care in speaking about other people. What is our motivation? Can we check our motivation? Is it our intention to divide, or is our intention to bring people together by our speech? If we paid attention Just to that question, if before we speak about anyone else, we check to see whether our intention in some way is to divide people or to unite people, it would change our lives. But it takes 
being very alert, being very mindful. And that's why this practice is such a powerful practice of mindfulness in our lives in the world. People are all always asking, well, how can I integrate the practice into my life? It's right here, because we speak so often. If we actually practice being mindful, noticing the motivation before we speak, we'd be mindful a good part of the day. On another level, our speech may also be a kind of gossip about ourselves, you know, as a form of mana, as a form of conceit, the conceit of I am. So we can notice when our talk is overly self-referential, you know, always bringing the conversation back to ourselves. It would be insightful to look at the motivation there. You know, why do we do that? Or we might have the opposite conditioning of mana. Rather than always taking center stage, maybe our pattern is to stay obsessive, obsessively behind the scenes, never giving voice, or rarely giving voice to our thoughts and feelings. The reason that this aspect of the path inspires me so much is that speech can be such a powerful mirror of our minds. We can see so clearly the range of our motivations in speech, both wholesome and unwholesome. We learn so much about our minds if we pay attention to it. If we have the interest and the alertness and the honesty to really look carefully. One time I was driving back from New York City after doing uh, a weekend uh, teaching in the city. I was driving back to Barry to IMS with a friend. We were just driving. It's, a, it's about three and a half or four hour drive. And I noticed in my mind, we were just talking about this and that. And I noticed this thought arise in my mind <coughs> to say something. It was a very self-referential thought about me. <laughs> but it had no relevance to anything. It was just, it was completely out of the blue, not in the context of anything. So I saw it. I was really mindful of that thought arising in my mind. And I, ah, that's mana. That's, it's just talking, here I am. Basically, that's what the motivation was about. And it's not that I really needed to assert that. It was clear that I was there. <laughs> so I saw the thought, you, just totally irrelevant thought, but you know, being that self-referential, and I let it go. Oh, good. And about 30 seconds later, the same thought came up again. <laughs> and I saw it, and I let it go. And 30 seconds after that, it came up again. And I let it go. And this happened for about, I don't know, 10 or 15 times. And in less time, it came up, and out it came. <laughs> and I was just amazed at the power of this totally irrelevant thought. 
based, and it made me appreciate, it really, I got a very clear vision of how deeply rooted this kilesa, this defilement of conceit, of mana is. As I mentioned, it's not uprooted until full enlightenment. After we've uprooted desire, after we've uprooted all aversion, mana is still there. That's how strong this habit of mind is. So we don't want to be seeing it with judgment or you know, aversion. It's just interesting to be alert enough to see it. With regard to right speech, the Spanish poet uh, Antonio Machado, he had some good advice. He said, if you want to talk, first ask a question and then listen. I thought that's a good guideline for conversation. So the first aspect of right speech is truthfulness. The second aspect is refraining from just gossip or backbiting. The third aspect of wise speech has to do with the emotional tone in our minds and hearts as we speak and how that conditions and flavors the words that we use. And so the practice of this aspect of right speech is refraining from harsh, angry, and abusive speech. Again, these are the Buddha's words. One speaks such words as are gentle, soothing to the ear, loving. Such words as go to the heart are courteous, friendly, and agreeable to many. There's a little story, you may be familiar with the Jataka tales, <coughs> which are a collection of stories <coughs> Excuse me. of the past lives of the Buddha. And there, there are a lot of tales illustrating various Dharma points. So one of these stories was just, <clears throat> it's, not, it's not that it's a profound story, it's just a, it was a little incident, but I read it years ago, you know, right in the beginning of my interest in Buddhism, but somehow, somehow there was something about it that has stuck in my mind all these years. So it's one of the past stories of the Bodhisattva that tells how he weaned his otherwise good mother from harsh speech. (laughs) It's said that she was rude and ill-tongued, but that her son, who was the Bodhisattva, aware of the weakness, did not want to hurt her feelings by just speaking too plainly about it. So one day they were walking in the royal park, because the Bodhisattva at that time was the king of Benares. So he went to this royal park with his mother and a whole group of retainers. And on the way, there was a blue jay that screeched so harshly that it said just everyone covered their ears. Then later in the day, they walk in the park again with his mother, and it said an Indian cuckoo called so sweetly that the people were happy and hoped that it would sing again and again. So this was the moment the Bodhisattva had been waiting for. He said, Mother dear, 
The jay's cry was dreadful, and we covered our ears rather than listen to it. No one delights in coarse language. Though without beauty, the cuckoo won the love and attention of all with its pleasing call. One's speech, therefore, should be friendly and restrained, calm and full of meaning. Thus, exhorted by her son, the mother became refined in speech and elegant in manners. <laughs> it's a very sweet story, and somehow, you know, it's learning how to make the point in just the right way, at just the right time, and really we can affect changes. And it just points to, again, the importance of the tone that we speak in. You know, what's the emotion behind it? We need to be conscious, mindful of the energy behind our words. Because how do we feel when angry words are directed at us? If somebody is really venting anger at us, how do we feel? Probably hurt or defensive. Maybe our own anger arises in response. And this is obviously not the best environment for good communication. And at the most basic level, this is what right speech is all about. It's about communication. The intent here is not to suppress feelings. It's not that we have to sit, sit on our feelings, but rather to communicate in such a way that promotes connection rather than promotes divisiveness. And what's the tone? What's the energy? That will do that. Right speech also has implications for how we listen, how we listen to others. And the Buddha outlined a practice that would transform the world if people would begin to apply it in their lives. And it relates to some of the questions that arose this morning. How are we when we hear different kinds of words? This is what the Buddha said. It's a radically challenging and transforming practice. He said, bhikkhus, in this context, all of us walking on the path, there are five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or connected with harm, spoken with a mind of love and kindness or a mind of inner hate. Here in bhikkhus, you should train yourself thus our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness. Do you find that as amazing as I do? I mean, here the Buddha is laying out all the ways that people may speak to us and the whole range. Maybe they may be speaking the truth, or telling us lies, speaking lovingly, speaking with a lot of hate or anger. The Buddha is really saying, 
we need to simply be mindful, oh, this is the kind of speech that's happening, our minds will remain unaffected, which is the power of mindfulness in that context. Mindful enough to not utter unskillful words in return, and, I mean, this is an amazing practice. Just imagine somebody's telling you lies, full of hate, we shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving-kindness. Now that's a practice. You know, it's the challenge of that, of the way we speak, of the way we listen, of the energy in our hearts in speech, in listening, which is why our life in the world is no less of a practice of liberation than what we're doing here. And in many ways, it's more challenging because of the busyness of it. But if we undertake this aspect of the path as our practice, it's tremendously transforming. So the last aspect of right speech is refraining from useless talk. And there's a word for that in Pali. It's almost, what's that? There's a linguistic uh, term, onomatopoeia, you know, where the word sounds like what it is. The word for useless speech in Pali is sampapalapa. <laughs> so I love that word. Sampapalapa. <laughs> And we see this so often just in our ordinary social situations. You know, we were just speaking useless words. And when we do, you know, we really have the sense, I think, of how enervating it is. It's a loss of energy and it causes a loss of respect. Our words really become worthless. And sometimes, it can have really bad consequences, even in the moment. So this, a friend of mine told me this story. Uh, some of you may have heard this before, but it's such a striking story of Sampapalapa and its consequences. But you have to understand that this story happened pre-9-11. Because after 9-11, it would be a whole other story. This friend was from New York. He was taking a vacation, going on vacation to Bali. Went to Kennedy Airport, JFK Airport in New York. Got on the plane. And he had injured his hand uh, previously. So he's getting into his seat and you know, everybody's settling down. And the flight attendant comes along and he said he was doing a little exercise, you know, with a kind of rubber ball in his hand. And the flight attendant comes along and says, oh, what's that? And just without thinking, he says, plastique you know, which is the explosive that people use to blow things up. He was just making a joke. Within about two minutes, the FBI was on the plane. They took him off. They held him this in lengthy interrogation. You know, it took, I don't know how many hours before he convinced them, you know, that he wasn't a terrorist. The airline wouldn't let him back on. He, they said, you can never fly on this airline again. <laughs> I mean, it was just this horrendous result. Of course, post 9-11, he'd probably be in jail. 
So finally, after a few days, he kind of gets it worked out. He books another airline, gets to Bali. On his return flight, he's sitting in the airport in Bali, waiting to come back. And you'd think he would have learned. <laughs> but he's just, he's just sitting, somebody he doesn't know next to him, and making you know, light conversation. And he said, hey, you know you're sitting next to a terrorist? <laughs> Fortunately, nothing happened. <laughs> But he was telling me the story with regard to Sampapalapa, to useless speech, completely useless, and in this case having really dire consequences. A very good question to hold in our mind before we speak, is it useful? Is it necessary to say this? Does it serve any purpose? Very often it doesn't. Again, the Buddha expressed it this way. He said, One speaks at the right time, in accordance with facts, speaks whether it is useful, speaks of the Dhamma. Such a person's speech is like a treasure, uttered at the right moment, accompanied by reason, moderate and full of sense. That's a very measured statement of how we should speak. But here the Buddha was speaking to the monastic community and holding it to a very high standard. Bhikkhu Bodhi, in his book on the Eightfold Path, he expanded it a little bit. He kind of loosened the, the guidelines a bit with regard to lay life, acknowledging that lay people, as he said, have more need for affectionate small talk with family and friends, polite conversation with acquaintances, and talk in connection with work. But even with kind of that more normalizing, you know, expansion of the parameters, there's great room for restraint of some papalapa. And as a practice of right speech, which I really try to practice, it's in my mind a lot, although not always successfully, I found it tremendously helpful and strengthening of mindfulness when I can see, especially in a social situation, you know, just hanging out with friends, and I can see the impulse come up to say something that is totally useless, and then to refrain from saying it. It feels like one of life's small victories over Mara. You know, ah, oh, there was that impulse and I didn't do it. It feels good. It feels strengthening. It feels like awareness has just taken a little deeper root in us. So we have seen how powerful a part of our practice right speech can be. It's not, it's not some secondary endeavor. It's not by accident you know, that the Buddha gave so much emphasis to it. It's the third step on the Eightfold Noble Path. It cultivates, when we practice right speech, it cultivates abstinence from unwholesome mind states. It gives expression to the beautiful mind states of the Brahma Viharis. We give expression to love and compassion and sympathetic joy. And most importantly, 
it aligns us with what is true. And that is what's so fundamental to this whole practice and path of liberation. If speech has five marks, O monks, it is well-spoken, not badly spoken, blameless, and above reproach from the wise. What are the five marks? It is speech that is timely, true, gentle, purposeful, and spoken with a mind of loving-kindness. What are these five marks? It is speech that is timely, true, gentle, purposeful, and spoken with a mind of loving-kindness. So let's sit for a couple moments. This is from a teaching by Zigar Kongtrul Rinpoche. He said, the potential for realization is universal and present for all of us. True benefit will come from your own efforts and realization. For your efforts to bring benefit, you must take your life into your own hands and examine your mind and experience. From this point of view, Nobody could be kinder to you than yourself. Nobody could have a greater effect on you or actually do more for you than yourself. The Buddha said, I have shown you the path of liberation. Now liberation depends on you. This is really true. If you don't take your life into your own hands, not even the Buddhas can make a difference. It's up to you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.